Juliet Stevenson, it is brilliant to have you on 20 Questions With. It's, I don't know how many years since I interviewed you for my old BBC Five Minutes With series. We've got a little bit more time today, but we'll still <laughs> hurtle through. We'll get a good pace up. I yeah. saw you last week in The Doctor at the Duke of York Theatre. What a tour de force from you. You're on stage for almost the entire three hours. Yes, there was an interval, but... I just can't understand how you're capable, not you personally, but anyone is capable of the emotional, intellectual and physical intensity involved. Well, it's, I mean, I love, I, I, I love a challenge. I really adore having challenges. And I think, you know, when you get older, possibly those challenges are fewer. So it is, I, I really, really love it. I, you know, I'm always a little bit apprehensive at about 20 past seven, but I start to get out there at half past seven and then it just, it's like this incredible surfing ride, you know, through the next three hours. And I mean, it's such an incredible role. There's almost no place it doesn't take me. And that's just like a, a privilege. I do feel like incredibly lucky. Um, and adrenaline is an amazing drug. I mean, it, it, it powers you through. And then, the answer to sort of dealing with the huge scale of it really is that I just take everything, you know, nanosecond by nanosecond. If you're always just in the present moment, anything's possible, really. You know, uh, I don't think ahead. I think, oh, my God, I've got another hour and 40 minutes to go or something. I just stay in the moment. And that's where that's where it's sort of best to be on stage anyway. So uh, it's a joy, really. When I interview people, Juliet, it's always different. I mean, I've interviewed you several times in newspaper, for TV, as I've said, and, and so forth. This is a podcast. It's always different. For you, you are, in one sense, doing the same thing night after night. Last night was your 100th night. Mm. But I, I suspect each performance is somehow different at the same time. Is that true? And if so, could you explain it to us? Absolutely is true. I mean, first, the main ingredient that changes in the audience is the audience. And it is astonishing to me. I mean, I've worked for 45 years and it remains as astonishing as it ever did how audiences change. I mean, they like you'll get an audience in one night who are just raw with laughter at every line that's even halfway funny. Next night, an audience will come in. They'll hardly laugh at all. They think they're at something very serious. And there's just no accounting for why that happens. And the odd thing is that there's 650 people in that auditorium. And yet we always describe the audience as one person. So we'll say, oh, they're really bright tonight or they're... They're a bit. Um, they're a bit shy tonight. They don't seem to want to laugh. You know, it's it's an odd thing that we always uh, they always they sort of assume one identity. Whereas, of course, you've got a mass of different responses going on out there in in reality. But um, so that's the first thing. And 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 a show is really a conversation with an audience, much more than an audience might be aware of. You might think sitting in the dark there that you're watching something that's going on, and you're not really a part of it. You're just an observer in your seat. But actually, from our point of view, it's very much a dialogue with you. It's a conversation, you know, and we can pick up audiences who are restless, bored. Somebody's got a cough problem in the back row. You're very aware of the quality of listening, whether it's acute listening, which it often is on this show. It's it's a wonderful relationship. So that's the first thing that changes every night. But then the dynamic of the company changes. You know, sometimes there are some actors who go out there and are very different every night. There are some actors who go out there and do exactly the same performance every night. We differ. I think I'm sort of probably... Somewhere in the middle. I like it to be new and fresh every night, but uh, the, the, but there is a structure. I, I'm trying to understand how you, at the same time as being completely involved in your character and the character that you're playing, completely mm. involved in the moment, as you say, completely involved in, in the other characters, that, that you are creating this reality for us. At the same time, you are also aware of the audience. H how does that work? Are you kind of operating on different levels as a human being at the same time when you're on stage? You absolutely are. 
I mean, that's actually a very good way of putting it. It is the strangest thing, I agree, that you are completely immersed in somebody else, somebody else who doesn't behave or think like you at all. And because I'm out there all evening, I can really immerse into this character of Ruth Wolf and, and just let her take over, really, which is why fresh and new things do happen during, during performances. But there's, there's always a part of your brain that's, of course, you're conscious that you're on a, a lit space raised up above an audience. If you if you walk too far down there, you'll fall off. <laughs> you know, um, there are things that happen. You're sometimes aware of sirens outside. Or last week, a lamp fell from up in the flies and crashed down on the stage behind me, narrowly missing me by a couple of feet. And, you know, that could have been a disaster. So there are, there are there's a part of you which is monitoring those things all the time. I would say it's sort of... I don't know what the proportions are, but most of me is engaged in, in the fiction, but there's always an element, of course, of you that's, that's, that's monitoring the whole thing. The Doctor deals with really challenging issues, doesn't it? And, and it doesn't force a particular view down our throats. It wants us to do a lot of the work. And of course, we're there having an argument with ourselves or having an argument with the play or having an argument with imaginary interlocutors, imaginary debaters. We're not on Twitter. We're not around the dinner table. We're sort of stuck, perhaps isn't the right word, but we are in the theatre. And all of these things are playing out and we're having to kind of process them ourselves as an audience. The play was written in 2019, partly in response to the sort of deafening screaming that goes on sometimes into the internet with people really not listening to each other and have one point of view or one attitude or one opinion. And that's it. They're sort of walled into that, the identity group around that opinion. And I think it's very much in response to that, in protest in a way to that. So the whole point is there isn't really a right. There are no rights or wrongs. There are really only points of view. And it's inviting the audience to return to that culture where points of view that differ and oppose each other are fine. You know, that's what we live with. We live alongside people of different faiths, different belief systems, different political views, different cultures. And that's what democracy is. And that's what freedom of speech means. And we we need to learn to live alongside each other. And we always have. So I think what's happening is very, very alarming. What social media has done to our levels of intolerance towards each other is terrifying. And I think now with cancel culture added into that and where people's whole lives can be destroyed by having an opinion, however unsavory you might think it is, I don't believe that people should be destroyed because of an opinion they have. And I think that's what freedom of speech is. Um, if anybody hasn't yet listened to the first wreath lecture by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, she speaks absolutely beautifully in, about this subject in her in her talk on freedom of speech. And I think that's what the play is addressing. So my character is the main character and you follow her through the evening, but the decisions she makes and the things leaves and stands for aren't necessarily right. They're just, they invite you in and you share her point of view and you see her reality, but but you're, you're, you're perfectly, you're welcomed to disagree with her. Does performing in contemporary theatre as you are at the moment, does that provide different challenges to performing, say, for example, in a Beckett play, Happy Days, which was, I think, a, a marathon, huge effort for you as an actor as well? Mm. Well, I mean, I think I only do plays if they speak to the times we live in. I really don't have any interest in doing any other plays than those. That could be a Shakespeare play if it speaks to the times we're living in. You could do Measure for Measure now, which is about the corruption of those in power, the double standards of those who rule. I mean, that would be a very opposite thing to be doing right now. And if I was doing it, I'd feel I was doing a play that was relevant to now because of the, you know, because of the political times we're living in. And quite honestly, the government we have at the moment in my view. But anyway, um, 
So I think I think any play can can in a way have a contemporary relevance. When you're doing a play like this, which is literally written in the last three years and is about completely current things, although it is based on a classic play written in 1910, of course. Schnitzler. Schnitzler's play, which which has the same plot line, but then of course Rob Rob Ike, the writer, has rewritten it. But I, I, that is my favorite thing because I think theatre is about now. You go out on stage, you meet your audience. It's now you're you're talking to. It, 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 that's why I've got no interest in doing classical plays, sort of in the way they might have been done in Shakespeare's time or something. I've absolutely no interest in that because it's it's a, it's it's ephemera, you know. Next week the play it will have gone. We finish this run on Sunday. People will hold this play, I hope, in their memories and maybe in the hearts and minds for a while. But the reality is, it, it's a discussion now and then it's gone. And all it's all you can hope for is that it will stay in people's minds and it might shift their thinking about something. But that's the job. It's it's a it, you know films are forever, but theatre is is a live event and it's gone. So I think it's about it's about addressing the things that, that concern us and are of you know of relevance now. And that's what I love about it. I that's what I most want to be doing. How do you differentiate in your approach to theatre and film? I don't differentiate a lot. I think this is sort of when people say you know they absolutely different from each other and require completely different things as an actor. I don't agree at all with that. I mean, it's the same thing. You're playing somebody else who's not you. There's a big journey to make towards that person, away from yourself and to find out who they are, what their history is, what their background, what their childhood was like, what shapes them, what they're frightened of, what do they love, what do they think about X or Y. That's all the same work. It still should be on film. This is notion that your relationship on film is with a camera. But I don't entirely believe that either. I think it's your, your relationship is still with each other as actors, that the live event on stage takes place between the people playing the scene in this space between us where the energy is swapped, you know. And I think that's also true on film. And when you're working with an actor very alive, in a very alive way on film and a camera is capturing that, that's the most exciting performance on film that you will see where people come in and only have a relationship with the camera and don't really connect to each other as characters on a film set. That's quite boring. So I don't think there's a lot of difference. And it's still a huge imaginative exercise into somebody else's reality, into another world, another fiction. And and it's just a question of how you adjust the scale of that. Playing in a, in a West End theatre, you know, with three galleries, of course, I'm aware that I need to take that performance up and out to everybody in that auditorium. So I just I just send it up there. It's, it's a sense in which it's it's bigger. With there's a camera, you know, a foot away from my face, and obviously I'm going to scale it down. But that's about the only difference you make, really. Juliet, could you talk to us a little bit about chemistry, the chemistry you have between certain actors on stage? Is that something that you either have or you don't with a particular actor or actress, or is that something that you can develop? I think both those things are true, Matt. I think you sometimes have an extraordinary chemistry with an actor. I often play mothers and of you know young adults, as it were, and and sometimes I'll work with a young actor who may have come from a particular sort of training or something or lack of training, where they they're very much conscious of their own performance and they don't really connect to other people very much. That does happen quite a lot these days, to my sadness actually. That will be more of a challenge. But you know, I not long ago made a film with a young, wonderful young actor, Alex Lawther, who honestly I felt he was my son almost from day one. We had this just extraordinary connection. I really could believe he was you know, that he came out of my DNA. So that was a gift and and it was a very open relationship. That was filming, but we were absolutely able to create a live event in front of that camera. So it is partly just chemistry, like as it is in life, when you meet somebody and you really hit it off with them or you don't. That's just, that's also true of us. But it's also true that you can build that. 
or sometimes you can lose it. You might have it and it, then, it, then you know, you it, it, it disappears. More often than that, you can build a relationship with an actor. Um, I mean, act, actors work in very, very different ways. And I think the truth is that it'll probably work best with an actor who works in a reasonably similar way to you. I always say you can divide actors into two essential camps. One is actors who go on stage to reveal who they are and use all of their internal life to tell stories of a character. And then the camp of actors who go on stage to conceal who they are and want to construct an edifice around themselves and sort of just play somebody else which is safely removed from themselves. And I think I work better in the, with people in the first camp because I think that's more who I am. So people who are happy to go into their internal lives and sort of use it to, to communicate is where I feel I function from, where I work and where I probably works better when actors, are, you know, when working with actors who are similar to that. I came you to say have to, you have to make it work every way, every which way, you know. I came to say hello to you after seeing you and the doctor the other day backstage. And it was amazing to see your fellow actors and actresses sort of pouring out into the night from this West End theatre. They'd been so involved in this in this play and in transporting us to somewhere different. And then out they go into the street, just like the yes. rest of us. Could you take us behind the, the scenes a little bit yourself? So before a performance begins... Yeah. Or maybe even at the start of the run or when you're in auditions, are there any comparisons to a sporting team? Are you like, right, come on, guys, tonight's got to be amazing or let's make this run the best thing ever? H how does that work, the group dynamic? It's so like a sporting team. I mean, you've hit it on the nail. It's very, very like a sporting team. I mean, not that I've ever been in it, like, apart from playing netball at school. But it, it's, you know, everything. My, I've got a house full of men who love and watch football and talk about, you know, the, the changing room, the locker rooms and it's very, very like that, I think. I mean, I'm I'm the thing I love most about my job is the ensemble idea that you are a team, you're one of a team and you go out there as a collective, you know, as a group. And yeah, some people have huge parts and some people have much smaller parts, but you are a team, just like in football, you know, somebody's playing, you know, centre mid, somebody else is a goalkeeper, somebody's on the benches, but you're all part of a team. And um we meet at 6.30 every night before the show. We meet on stage. I mean, I come in before that and start getting ready about quarter to six, six o'clock. I like, I like having time. But we meet together at 6.30 and we play sort of games with each other um, to just, they're about focusing. They're about coming together as a group, being aware of each other and sort of warming up our faculties, you know, our sort of responses, our reactions, speeding those up, um, connecting to each other, looking each other in the eye. We play very fun games. And they're all about sort of sharpening those things and sharpening our sense of unity and of an ensemble. Uh, it's And then anybody has a chance to say anything if they want to say, listen, I thought we were a bit slow last night, guys. I'm not sure we're listening in that scene. Or, you know, we talk like that. We can't, you can't always have those conversations with a company. But this company is a very wonderful, we can self-medicate. We can say, listen, come on. You know, we've put four minutes onto the first half of the show this week. Let's just... If you've got to pause, take it down. You know, let's be disciplined about pausing and or, or whatever you want to say. And and it's a healthy, robust group of people and they don't mind. Uh, you know, we, we can have those conversations, which I really love. Where does your performance come from in a play like The Doctor, where you're on stage, as I said, for three hours and there is this incredible intensity to the performance? Where does that come from? Does it come partly from your training at RADA? Does it come from your life experience? Does it come from what you experienced that particular day? Does it change day to day? Where, where, where do you, what do you draw on? I draw on everything I've ever experienced in my life, I think. Everything goes into the pot and can be, I mean, I sometimes describe myself as a sort of recycling machine, you know, everything you've been through in life. And of course, at my age, you've been through a lot, you know, a lot of 
births, deaths, losses, joys, um, disappointments, terrors, and, and everything goes into that pot. I literally don't spare anything. I mean, some people will not use memories of their children or something when they're in, the, in their work to draw on, but I am pretty, I'm pretty ruthless. I will draw on everything. I mean, about three weeks ago, it was an anniversary of a deep, huge grief and loss we have in our family. Uh, it was a very difficult week to do the show because the show is so much about grief at the end. You know, she has to collapse into grief. And that week was quite challenging because what was going on in my own life, it was only a two-year anniversary. It's quite a recent grief. So it was sometimes threatening to overwhelm that moment and be more more than more than I had space to express in the show. But of course, I needed to use that grief in my own life. And it 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 flowed into my character's grief. Of course it did. It would have been insane not to allow that to happen. But it was at times quite difficult to stop it becoming overwhelming, for example. But I oh. think going right back to when I was a child, I, I grew up as a child, you know, with no telly, no cinema. I was running around the world in the army with my military family. Everything was really about the imagination. I only had things like books to read. and But I would imagine myself. I would run scenarios in my head and pretend to be other people like most kids do. And I think that that need to be other people and live other lives was always a part of my life. I know I don't remember ever being alive without that. So I think in a way what I do now is only, and then you add, you know, 65 years of life to that and heartbreak and love and joy and all the things that a life brings with it. And then of course, training and experience, you know, learning how to, how to allow that out and through. I think I feel a level of confidence now, which I never felt before. I feel very, very free on stage now. I think when I was younger, I had to work against nerves more. I felt more constricted, but now I could, I could really do anything up there because there's really nothing to lose when you're my age. This is a mundane question, but I think it's an important one nonetheless. How do you learn your lines? How do you learn hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lines? Yeah, no, it's always an interesting question, actually. Firstly, it's what we do for a living. So I think whatever you do for a living that you do every day, you just practice it so much. It's like doing an arm exercise in the gym. You know, you work on that muscle. You have a machine that works that muscle in your arm every day. It's going to get strong. You know, I mean, I'm useless at remembering other things. My memory is very, very good for learning lines. It's pretty terrible. If you ask me the plot of a film I saw, you know, six months ago, <laughs> I may not be able to tell you. So, you know, names aren't always um, things I remember. But learning lines is really a map. It's a map about how thought moves from one thought to the next. Words that a character says are thoughts they have. I think acting is almost entirely thinking out loud. So you have a thought and that leads to another thought and then that leads to another thought. Then somebody says something to you and you think that your response to that is this. So when I'm learning lines, I think, well, okay. So you get to a certain point in a speech, for example, and you think, what does she say next? What do I say next? You think, well, where does, she, where does her thought go next? Oh, yeah, she, that makes her think of that. And then the line comes. Do you see what I mean? It's literally like a map of a path or a road. The road is thinking. And, and when you dry on stage, which means when you forget your lines, it's probably because you've, you, you're not thinking anymore. You've, you forgot to think. Where does feeling interact with thinking then when you're on stage? Well, that, this is also really interesting to me. See, I don't think acting is about feeling. I think feeling will just follow thought. If you think about something that makes you very sad, you know, when the character starts thinking about the, her finally starts talking about, you know, she's lost her partner, her beloved partner to Alzheimer's. She doesn't talk about that all the way through the play. She finally, at the end of the play, starts talking about it and breaks down in grief. Now, you might think, well, how am I going to break down in grief every night, eight times a week? But the fact is, I get to that point in the play, I start talking about her to the priest who's asking, 
And I just think about it. I think about, I've got that image in my mind of everything. In my mind, I've built up the backstory of how she did it, what she looked like, how I found her in the sitting room lying, you know, dead on the sofa, um, what I felt like, what I did at the time, the panic, the terror, what I had dreaded. You know, I think I've got the whole backstory there in my heart, as it were. So when I come to that piece of thinking, those feelings just flow in. You know, as they do in life, you think you see something makes you think about your mum. You lost your mum a year ago. Feeling will flow into the thought. I think they're inseparable. Elizabethans didn't separate thought and feeling. They were all the same thing. And that's why in Shakespeare plays, you know, they're not separated. And and I think that's true in life as well. And that's how I think I work as an actor, that with any luck, it will just flow in. Sometimes you have to work on it. It doesn't. So you have to work on it. You have to breathing is another thing. I mean, every feel, every state of emotion has a different breath pattern. When we're frightened, we breathe fast and high in our chests and breath tends to get trapped up in high in the chest. You can't breathe deeply when you're frightened. So if I'm not feeling it, then I will go into a, into a breathing pattern that will generate that feeling. You're an Olivier Award winner. You've been nominated for Olivier Awards. You've been nominated for BAFTA Awards. You're one of our great actresses. How do you relate to directors now? What's that relationship like? Because you're bringing so much yourself. You're bringing so much experience. You're no doubt bringing strong views as to how you think things might be done. How how does that work? Well, it's a very, it's an intense relationship with the director. I mean, I I have been working with the same small group of directors recently. Not that I don't want to work with new ones. I I, I do. But I have worked with this director, Rob Ike, a lot in the last few years. And we have a very close relationship. I admire him massively. I love the kind of theatre he makes. He is, you know, he's young. He's, he's the same age as my kids. He's very much younger than me. But I love that. Uh, he's been very tough with me, which I also love. He has the confidence to say, I don't want to see that anymore, Jules. I've seen you do that too many times. You know, he, I've learned a lot from him. He's he's made demands of me, which I've welcomed. My biggest fear is, is you know, never being given challenges and never being um, you know pulled up by the bootstraps by, by directors who are too respectful of you. You know, very often you find people are respectful of you. You've been around a long time. You've got a bit of a reputation. So they don't think they can give you any notes or directions. That's not at all what I want. You know, I love to be made better, to learn how to get better at my job. And Rob has done that. Rob, has, he really has taught me a huge amount. And because I love the way his mind works, I love the theatre he makes. And he also writes the plays as well. So it's been an extremely close and, and, and you know intense relationship, really. It doesn't always make it easy. We do have arguments. I get very upset sometimes. You know, it's it's quite familial. It's a very intense, quite intimate relationship, but it's very productive. I mean, other directors not like that. It's more formal. But um, I've worked also a lot with Natalie Abrahami, who I love working with. We did Happy Days together twice. We did Wings at the Young Vic, crazy show, which I did everything in a trapeze up in the floor. You know, I I I I love working with Natalie. She's very respectful. But she'll also challenge in her quiet way, you know, and and so I, it's important to me to have a relationship which is really productive. I think I'm much easier to work with now. I think when I was young, I was a bit, I was a bit challenging, perhaps. I think I was quite often a bit combative in rehearsal when I was much younger. And if I didn't like the way a director was functioning in the room or thought I didn't agree with his take on the play or hers, I, I would challenge that. And now I think I'm much more, I just go with the flow more because I think I don't, yeah, I mean, that's. I think it just works better when it's a harmonious room and when you give directors full authority and the benefit of the doubt. And it's a long time since I've worked with a director who I didn't respect and, and, and you know. You've spoken to me in the past about diminishing roles or diminishing number of roles for women as you get older. 
Do you mm. think that started to change? I mean, maybe you were perhaps thinking more then of TV and film than theatre. I'm not sure. But do you think things are starting to get better? Because I remember, I mean, I, I interviewed you more than 10 years ago now, perhaps four or five minutes with that old BBC series. And you were talking about this being something that you needed to fight or that needed to be fought. Do you think progress has now been made? A little progress has been made, for sure, but not enough. I mean, it's it's a chronic lack that, you know, there are so many wonderful actresses in your 20s and 30s, you, if, you know, if you're lucky, you have a, a wonderful time. Honestly, you hit 40 or 45 and suddenly there are no roles to play, hardly any roles to play. All the roles that there are to play are just much smaller and less interesting. And they never carry the narrative of the play or the film. They're just usually there to support the male protagonist. That is very often the case. If I mean, if you defy, defy anybody to to turn on their telly or to watch something that's streamed and just just look at the, at the roles going on there. Just look at who's playing what. And, and the majority of the work will be that the men are carrying the storyline. It's about what they do. It's what, what they say and think. And, it, it, you know, and the women will by and large be wives or girlfriends or and supporters. When women are younger, that's much less the case. You know, you, you do have women who take the narrative in. The, and they're very often the love interest or, or their sexual value is, is rated highly. So, and then when you get over, that's supposed to not be the case anymore. So a lot of, I mean, it's it's a sort of misogyny that is, that, that, that is in the world as well, of course. It reflects the world that women, as they get older, are judged to be of less value in terms of the way they look or the way they operate than younger women because they are not considered to have you know it's the male gaze problem and then that really genuinely is still very much the case it is better than it was 20 years ago but it's, it's you still need to be very vigilant and I know so many actresses past the age of 45 or certainly 50 who now hardly ever work and their careers just crash I'm part of a of an organisation. There's a there's a sort of campaign group called the Acting Your Age campaign, which is you know trying to draw attention to this and and invite writers and producers and directors and people who make the work happen to look at this and think, look, there's so much interest in these older feisty women who know a lot now, had lots of experience, are confident in themselves, and have a lot to say and give. I've come to know you over the years and I know that you feel very passionately about certain issues and that you're very politically engaged. And one of the things that you care about is refugees and the way that we treat people who are seeking asylum in this country. Do you want to just say something about that? Because I know it's so close to your heart. Yes, I I just think that, that there is so much in the press and the media about refugees, which is simply false information. Firstly, nobody becomes a refugee unless they're forced to do so. Everybody loves their home as much as we all do, their families, their lives, their jobs, their work. We don't all love those things, but that's what our lives are. Nobody wants to uproot all that and go to a strange land where they don't speak the language, away from the people they love, away from everything they know. If people are doing that, it's because they've been forced to do that by war, violence, hunger or prejudice. People have been driven from their homes. They haven't chosen to go. They're not traveling because they because they think they can earn a bit more if they go to England or something. It's 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 a very, very unhappy and desperate state. And it's a state that all of us could imagine happening to us. You know, if something happens to threaten this country, climate change, you know, if people in Liverpool who live by the sea, suddenly their towns are flooded because the oceans have risen a foot in depth, they're going to be refugees too. And would you know, how do you want to be treated? I mean, I, I think that, you know, my great, motto in life which I've tried to teach my kids too is 
you know, do as you would be done by. It's a very old fashioned motto, but you do to others as you would like done to yourself. It's a very simple rule. And if we live that way, you know, the world would be a much happier place. I mean, just treat every human being as an equal human being to yourself. Do you, would you want, if you were starving, if you were far from home, if you'd had to leave your family and be driven into a country where you didn't even speak the language, how would you feel? And to be treated like a pariah and to be to be imprisoned in some terrible sort of camp or detention camp like the one in Kent that we've heard so much about, treated like a third class citizen, you know, squashed into a room and given no rights or no privileges and given, given no humanity. How would you feel? That's all I ask of people is just use your imagination. Now, I, you know, we're living in a very, very precarious world now. You know, climate change is, is now happening. It's all around us. Many, many millions of people in the world have lives already destroyed by it. Hunger, famine. It's only a matter of time before it will hit us too. And we need to change the way we think, I think. We need to realise that we need to think differently. I also believe that fundamentally the people in this country are decent and kind people. When I look back at stories about the war, people were kind to each other. They mucked in together. That you know, I know it's a sort of cliche, the blitz mentality, but it was a reality. And I think we saw that in COVID times, in lockdown, that people came out of their houses, they looked after those people in the street who couldn't get out to shop, the elderly, the infirm, disabled the lonely, you know, people had a sense of community. And I think it's it's a way that the people in this country have, have often proved themselves to be very kind and decent. And I think that I just urge our politicians to recognise that and to recognise that these are the times we live in, that being a refugee is part of history. And we need to respond in a way that is more humane and more decent. Juliet, you behave and act as you encourage others to do. So you've taken in Ukrainian refugees yourself. Well, I have. But listen, I you know, I, I'm really aware that I am a privileged person. You know, I live in a house which is, it's a nice size house. We've got several bedrooms. They're my kids' bedrooms. The kids have grown up now and they're at university and they're elsewhere. So I had two spare bedrooms. Not everybody has that. Most people don't have that. And I'm highly conscious that I'm a privileged person. I'm lucky. I've worked hard all my life. I wasn't given anything for free, but I am lucky and I, I have that to offer. Most people don't have that to offer. So I am totally aware that not everybody can do things like that, but but most people can do something, you know. And I mean, I you know, I'm not suggesting that everybody does, but I just think it's about attitudes, really. It's not about what you can or can't do. It is about attitudes. And I just urge people to think what it would be like if they were in that situation. That's the first act, really, is just to try to imagine, you know, if you meet somebody in the street who's just been punched by their boyfriend or hit over the head by somebody, you help them to get up, you dust them down, you, you know, most people would be kind in that situation. And it's really only extension of that sort of kindness, which most, most people do are capable of showing and, and want to show. And I also think if you get involved in your community and go out there and, and keep an eye out for people less fortunate than yourself, it makes you feel better about the world. It also makes you feel you can do something. I think many people now, or many of us are, are have the sense that the world is getting terrifying it's getting worse things are going you know deteriorating and and there's nothing we can do we're up against these sort of huge powers that we can't influence i don't think that's true i think people can always do something you know most things in history have happened because of people power and when you feel you've contributed something to to your community in some way it makes you feel better about yourself and more empowered it's 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 not altruism it really does affect your your state of mind i think to feel that you do have authority you do have power as, as a citizen of this country to do something just want to return to work for a moment because i'm curious to know how you set up your diary for any given period of the year or for the year ahead do you know what you're doing in six months time do you know what you're doing in nine months time how do you fit in filming commitments with theatre runs and so forth? How, how, how does it work being Juliet Stevenson professionally? <laughs> it's all a bit of a jumble. You know, a lot of it's just destiny. I mean, um, I don't usually know what I'm going to 
be doing in six months time I do now because this show of ours uh, is going to New York at the end of May beginning of June so I do know that I'll be in New York June July August next year there's a lot of work which is already in place actually as it happens but that's unusual normally I wouldn't know and I love not knowing I mean, I think for some people, they need to know, they need the security of knowing, you know, that their job is safe and they know what they're going to be doing in five years time. I'm rather the opposite. I, I get scared if I know what I'm doing in five years time. So I I like this, the, the way it works. Of course, I always worry about, you know, work might pack up and I might not be able to earn the living um, for the kids and everything who's I'm still paying, you know, their university fees and stuff like that, rents and them and but no I do like that but oh it's a big old jumble I mean I I commit to a lot of stuff I like leading a busy life I do you know quite a lot of charity stuff because I find it interesting I meet really interesting people people who are not in my my world often have a lot to learn from them so I do pack the diary up in relation to theatre and film I mean I do more filming I suppose because that's where you earn regularly and pay the bills and it's better paid so you can you know cover all your outgoings theatre is never very well paid even the West End these days it's not that well paid but it's often the most challenging so I love to have a mix of the two you know I go from theatre to film and back again I mean film work can also be very challenging but on the whole the most sort of the, the, the demands that are greatest I feel are made on stage and I have to go back to those all the time or regularly because I need to keep challenged I need to keep being stretched but I love filming and I go there you know there's interesting work there too a lot what's it like when you're in a theatre run sort of living your life almost in reverse to how most of us live our lives of course there are lots of professions and jobs that involve working overnight but you are going to work as most people are coming home from work yeah it's an odd feeling I often walk down you know walking through the centre of town Soho towards the theatre and People are in bars, they've come out of their offices and they're having drinks and they're beginning their, you know, their evenings of leisure or they're heading home to families. And I think it's a, sometimes I feel a sort of strange feeling of being out of kilter with, with the world. But then when I get inside the door of the theatre and everybody's arriving from their day and we're all kind of buckling down to this event that we're going to, this sort of mountain we're going to climb that evening, then I get this very excited sense of, you know, I think I like working in evenings. I'm I'm a night owl. You know, I'm not at my best in the morning. When you're filming, you have to start acting at, you know, 7.30 in the morning. can be a bit of a killer for me, but I'm a night owl. So I, I don't have a problem working in the evening. And I think there's something that kicks in in the evening or at night, which is sort of very exciting. I might sometimes get a, a message from you in the early hours of the morning. Yes. Yes, I do a lot of texting at between 2 and 3 a.m. <laughs> I've got a small group of friends who are also awake at that time. And yeah, it's very funny. Okay, um, that that doesn't count as a question. But here is question number 18. What is life like for you outside work? We've talked about some of your political passions, but w what's life like for you when you're winding down, when you're relaxing, when you're in enjoying yourself? And I'm sure work is hugely enjoyable in, in much of the time, but give us a sense of life behind the scenes. Well, I'm a big family person. I've got, um, we've got we, um, several kids between us. Um, um, two of my own and and then uh, Hugh had t two little boys when I when I first met him years ago so um, I'm very family oriented I'm quite a hands-on mum the kids are um, at both at university now um, my daughter doing a second degree in medicine my son is is doing English so I that's always been a big part of my life being a mother obviously where they're away now there's less of that to do but I'm quite involved with the extended family you know with my my brothers my two brothers kids and and yes, I do love to get involved in other things. Like I do feel strongly about certain charities, particularly those involving refugees or children. So I do quite a lot of that. Christmas is coming up. So there are things like Christmas carol services for charities. I'm quite sociable. You know, I've got good friendships. Sorry, that's my dog, Millie. Shush. 
I love the countryside. I do love walking, looking at birds. My husband, Hugh, is a great countryside person. He's an, He knows a lot about wildlife and nature and a lot about birds. So we do love to, we walk quite a lot on Hampstead Heath and uh, I've learned a lot about birds from him. So that's one of the great joys. We've got a dog, our dog Millie. So we walk her, just, you know, straightforward things really. I do work hard. So just those moments of not working and hanging out with Hugh or the family or friends are like really, really precious. Penultimate question. Have you got any special skills that we might not know about that we should know about? <laughs> um, no, I don't think I've got any skills at all, except um, for what I do. What, what, no, no, I'm a rubbish cook. Um, I've always wanted to do an advanced driving course and practice sort of you know, skidding and spinning and all those exciting things. I fancy myself as a racing driver. I've always thought if my career packs up, I'll be a long distance lorry driver. I can really sort of, well, pre-Brexit, I don't want to sit in queues for sort of three days at Dover. But um, <laughs> but um, we're not allowed to say that, are we? Because Brexit's supposed to have been a triumph. Um, but uh, no, I can, I can, I, I can, I'd rather fancy myself up in a cab driving across Europe, you know, taking taking four days to get to, I don't know, Romania with a with a load of tellies or something. I I I am sleeping in my cab and jumping out and having coffees and cafes and oh yeah. That's probably not the life, but I, I can really get my head around that. I'm not answering the question. Other skills, I can't think of anything. <laughs> I want to finish by asking you what in your experience. I do paint. What, I, you paint? I paint a bit. Sorry, I just remembered I like painting. Yes, I do painting, but I'm not very good, but I do love painting. Sorry, what, what were you saying? What, what in your experience, Julia, what, what so far to you is the meaning of life? Wow. I think love is at the centre of human existence. I think there are many, many kinds of love. You know, we love our children, obviously. We love, you know, uh, the people we live with. But love of each other as well, humanity. I think that sits at the centre of, of human human existence and I think I've taken a very very long time to learn that love as a tool for change works better than anything else at work now if I'm trying to work with you know working with other actors or with stage management or with costume people or whoever it is I'm working with I used to be much more combative I used to sort of you know use the power of what I thought or my opinion or something to try and make a change or influence things now, it's taken me a while, but I really now believe and know, actually, that loving people into, into finding mutuality or, or, or change or works much better. You know, I'm working with an actor and we don't get on very well. The scene isn't working very well. It doesn't work to sort of pile opinions onto them or suggest different things. It works better to just support them, love them you know, work, build their confidence. I'm talking about younger actors, you know, who might be generation down from me, who don't have, you know, as much confidence or something. It just works better. And I think in the world, kindness, you know, to anybody in the bus or in a shop or wherever you are, it just works better to be kind. I think the world needs a lot more kindness and um, doesn't cost anything. When I look around the world, I'm so dismayed at the way... Human beings are manipulated by politicians or people in power to think that we're all each other's enemies and to build wars and aggressions. Lots of those wars are only to serve the arms industry or to, or to serve the vested interests of crazed, power-crazed political leaders. They're not what human beings naturally want to, to do or be. 
So I know it sounds perhaps a soppy answer, but it actually isn't soppy. I think love is robust and tough and it's a workable tool. It's a fuel for our lives. You know, you've just had a baby, Matt. You're up half the night, you're exhausted, you're having to do your work by day and also manage this tiny little person you're now responsible for. You love him to pieces, no doubt. I think when you have a child, you realize that's what love's for. Nature has given us love to make us cope with what we need to do in life. You know, the fact you get up four times a night to your tiny little boy is because you love him. If you didn't love him, you probably wouldn't get up. You'd think, I'll oh, just shut the door and <laughs> I'll go back to sleep. I'm, you know. But you love him. And so you get up and you put yourself through a lot of difficulty in order to make his life grow and be possible. Well, that's the same love as I think we can extend to each other. You don't have to be, you just have to be your children or your own family. You can love people out in the world. You can, you know, it's not the same love, but it's active, it's vibrant, it's effective, it's powerful. And it's a more powerful force, finally, than hatred. Luckily, my son doesn't sleep too badly. So I'm not up quite as many times as four, <laughs> four times a night. But you, but love is just so important. And I think whether that's when we've lost someone we love or when we've gained someone we love, it's right at the heart of our existence. So yeah, love is, love is just so important. And what a way to finish. I also want to just say that... People who want to get help can ring the Samaritans on 116-123. I know you referenced suicide when we were talking about the doctors. I just want people to know that there is help out there. 116-123. Juliet Stevenson, it's been such an honour and a privilege and a pleasure to interview you and to interview you in really some depth and to get to know a bit more about your art and, and your craft. And I'm really grateful to you for answering my 20 questions. It's lovely talking to you, Matt. Always a real pleasure. Thank you for having me.